So today, we're going to go into 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and 7, and there it is. We're going to glean a message that I pray that we all can, can take in some way or another. It can be a blessing and yet a challenge to each of us. And maybe it's, it's good just in light of the fact that here God gives us this house to use to his glory. As we read in, in 2 Chronicles, primarily chapter 7, God finally allowed a temple to be built to his name. And maybe you remember with me it was Solomon who, or David who wanted to build a house for God. And this was Solomon's dad, and he wanted to build a house for God, and there is the temple that finally, after four years with thousands of people and many nations working together, came at one point and put this temple together to glorify the name of God. And we're going to linger at this temple today for a little bit, but we want to get some deeper lessons that God will have for us today. But when Solomon, after he had dedicated the temple to God, in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 18, he just stops and he looks at the temple and he says, will God indeed dwell with mankind on the earth? Can God actually do that? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house that I builded. And Solomon stood there and said, God, you're bigger than this house. This house doesn't represent you. It just is a vehicle to glorify your name. And as Solomon continued, he was speaking to God in the 19th verse, chapter 6, yet have, have regard to the prayer of your servant and this supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servants pray before you, that your eye may be open toward this house day and night, toward the place which you have said you would put your name there, to listen to the prayer which your servants shall pray toward this place, Listen to the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from your dwelling place from heaven. Hear and forgive. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 2, the Word of God says right there in that verse, if you linger with me in your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, there's one right in front of you underneath the pew. But it says, the glory of the Lord filled this house. And there was a Shekinah glory of God that was just shining brightly. God was there to get the glory. It was God who allowed the house to be built. And Solomon was overwhelmed, and all the people were seeing God's glory. You know, if you would look at a graph and follow the graph of the children of Israel through the wilderness and Egypt and the wilderness, we talked a little bit about that a couple of weeks ago. And if you come to this place, there may be no higher point of reflection and magnification of the glory of God than right here. This house is done. God's promise has been fulfilled. It reflects the very glory of God. It shines out in the most magnificent way. And God has fulfilled his promise that he had given through Solomon's dad, David. And what happened in verse 5 is what's amazing. You'll see right in your Bibles, King Solomon, right there in the courtyard down below, 
he offered a sacrifice of 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep in that right down there. And Deb and I was talking about that the other night and says, well, how long would that take and how many people would that take to just provide the sacrifice? Thousands. I'm sure thousands of people were involved and God was just allowing those people to praise and see this see the altar going up there towards God, and there was the sacrifices that were being offered to the name of God. And verse 7, Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord, for there he offered the burnt offerings and the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar which Solomon had made was not able to contain the burnt offering, the great offering, and the fat. It was amazing what God was doing. But something happened. Solomon had spoke to God first and just spoke about how he couldn't be contained in this place. And the word of God said that, uh, we're going to look at this, and this is where I want to linger today, God spoke to Solomon. And I pray that we can get the burden of the heart of God, which as he speaks of his house, and then he begins to speak of his heart, and then he begins to speak about how he wants our heart to be his house. And that we can consider this, because what happens so often, and this is what happened in Israel, they lingered at the temple, and their eye began to leave the glory of God and focus on the beauty of the temple as time went on. And the temple lasted 410 years till Babylon came and, it was, it was, and, and destroyed the temple. But there it was, they looked at the glory of the temple and they lost sight of the glory of God. It is one of the most subtle sins that creep within the human heart. Something great overshadows the greatness. Something good overshadows the very best and that is what eventually would happen and this temple would be left desecrated and there would be a rebuilding of the temple through Herod and again, once again, it would go down. And today, all you see in the land of Israel is just the ruins of temple after temple that was destroyed. But it also was a testimony that the heart turned to the temple and away from the maker of the temple. And God began to speak, and I want to give us this this morning because it is so important in the day in which we live. In verse 11, thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night. Now, now God comes to Solomon at night. And here it's going to be, God begins to say, now I want to share my heart. Solomon, you see the temple. You know the greatness of what that temple was, but this is now my heart. I'm here to share my heart with you, Solomon. And I want you to see what is behind and beyond the temple because it is so easy to miss the greatness, the depth of my heart as you keep looking at the temple. So stop and think of my heart. And he says in verse 12, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. He says, Solomon had said, can God dwell in a house? Now he says, I've chosen this place as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, 
or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among the people. And then he, he begins to speak his heart in a very amazing way. And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever and my, my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. God is looking at this house, but as he begins to teach us this morning the word of God and as he begins to share with Solomon, we'll begin to recognize that God is teaching beyond this house. So often in the Word of God, God gives a natural to portray a spiritual. He gives something tangible, just like when we partake of communion, to teach something greater and deeper and more fulfilling. And God is doing this here as he's speaking to Solomon, and he's speaking about the, the just here's the house. You know, when we, were, uh, we think about all these young people up there camping, the little children, and when I was a young guy, we only took one trip a year. Almost every year, uh, we were fairly poor. We took one trip, and our trip we took every year was up to a place, some of you may know where it is. It's called Tuolumne Meadows up in the Tioga Pass area out of Yosemite going over the top of the pass down to 395. It's like 8,000 feet. And from the time we were just little teeny children, I had a brother, Joe's a pastor in Modesto, California, and myself, we could not wait to go to Tuolumne Meadows every year. And when we got there, as dirty as it may have looked to everybody else, it looked like this to us. We would just, we could not wait. And this was the great thing of the year. About five to seven days, we could do our favorite things. Mom had four or five favorite dishes. She took them every year. We went to the same lakes. We played in the logs and we, got, we went for the same campgrounds. And that's what it looked like. Now, I will say for uh, fast forward about 15 years, and Deb and I started doing this, our children, and when we get to the campground, it didn't look like that to us. <laughs> because we knew about setting up tents and cleaning up dirty little children and doing all the things that go with camping that can be very special, but also very laborious. And you make the investment, God gives it, you get back, but still it's quite a deal. But with that, as beautiful as that was, it changed. This would change too. It would not be long that there would be desecration happening in the temple so quickly. And God begins to speak to the people about that which was spiritual as he opens up his heart and says, this is really what I want for my people, not what you're seeing in that building. And here today in this world and and sometimes I've wished that it could just be possible that we could just take a lot of the folks from right here and say, I'd just like to take you to one church in China or one church in Myanmar and see how they have nothing but how they have everything. Because they have Jesus. And when he's there, he makes all the difference. Sometimes there's 10 people, 20 people in the middle of complete poverty. And when they begin to sing, you begin to weep. Because it catches you that they have seen something beyond the temple. 
And God was, was speaking to Solomon and saying, Solomon, I'm calling you to the same place. And I guess there's a sense that uh, I feel that burden for this body. But see, if all we ever see is a church called Calvary Chapel Surprise that sits down here in the corner of Greenway and Reams, we miss the message of God. We miss the heart of God. If it's about what denomination we're in or what group we're aligned with or who's right and who's wrong, we've missed God's heart. We have missed the heart of God. God's heart is that our heart turns toward him. And we will begin to see as he opens up in this 14th verse just a real quick movement through it and we will see God speaking of this heart. And in the first part, he says, and my people who are called by my name. And we say, who's he talking to? Who is God's heart beating toward? Notice it's toward his people. God knows the people that will respond to his deeper call is going to be his people. In those, those days, they were called the Israelites. They greatly let him down. The children of Israel went their own way. When Isaiah came along, he says, we have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. But God says, my people, it's got to be the right people, God says, who are called by my name. When we think of people, I, I think you can look at some of the prophets. They were men of God. It just went with like prophets like Elijah. There goes the man of God, Elisha. There's the man of God, Abraham, walking through the cities. There's the man of God. And yet today there's another name, a name that God's people are called that we never should be ashamed of in any circumstance, situation, on everything, because we're called by his name. We have been given a new name. God has put his stamp on us. He calls us his children. He calls us heirs and joint heirs with him. He calls us partakers of the promise. He calls us even strangers and foreigners. But there's a name in Acts 11 and 26 I want you to see with me. And there it was, Paul was getting there, and they said, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. There's the name, Christians, Christ, followers, disciples. Those people who have hazarded their life for the kingdom of God. And when God is speaking here, and as we, we fast forward to today, we recognize who is God looking to? Sometimes we think if we just get a better government. If this guy gets in, this guy gets out. If this thing... But God says, you know what? It's my people that I'm looking to. I think every one of us want to see transformation within our nation. We want to see transformation in human hearts. But God says, if my people who are called by my name, the condition is you need to be the people of God. You see, God doesn't work through reformation. He works through transformation. He works through regeneration. He changes people inside to out. He makes them new creatures in Christ Jesus. And here he says, uh, if my people who are called by my name, and then God gave a couple of things, what, 
what God said that they need to do. One of these is they need to have the right attitude. You know, sometimes I've heard it for many years, attitude is everything. Sometimes I'll get working in a particular situation. I'll think, what, how much of this is attitude? How much of this is actions? But God here is speaking of attitude as he says, if my, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves, attitude. God works with humble people. He's not looking for great men and women to help him out. All he's looking for is men and women of God who say, Lord, I'm your servant, and I just want to do what you want me to do. And God here says, the first criteria I have, and you think about this in lieu of his call, is to humble ourselves. David, Solomon's dad, was one that even in the middle of all of his failures, gave a tremendous example of humility. In Psalm 51, verse 10, it was there that David was coming to that place that he was so convicted of his sin. He was so overwhelmed by what he had done. In committing the sin with Bathsheba, he cried out and he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And David says, Lord, if that heart doesn't get clean, I can't go. I can't be the king. And humility starts with a cleansed heart. Many times when God puts a place of opportunity in front of us, whoever we are here, and God says go, God says be that person, be that vessel, the first thing he's going to do, he's going to point to the heart. Is your heart clean before God? You're not ready to go until your heart is cleansed before God. James chapter 4 verse 10 says it like this. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Notice how this goes. The step of humility is a step down. It's a step to serve, to be overlooked, to be forgotten, to be neglected, to be put on the shelf. But the word of God says this. You do it in the presence of God, not in the presence of men. All humility is only obtained as the comparison is toward God. With men, we'll either exalt ourselves or degrade ourselves. With God, we'll be humbled. Because God is God. He is the king and course. But notice what he says. He's going to exalt you. There's the promise. Humble yourself. And God says, but I've got to work with people with the right attitude. Those that are humble. Those that are broken. It was in that same psalm that David said, a broken God in a contrite heart, you'll never despise. You won't turn it away. You won't close the door. God created me that clean heart. And I don't know how many times in the course of one week, I will just be in the middle of something right here at church, and I will just stop and say, God, Unless I have a clean heart, I can't go forward at all. You ever notice how easy it is to lose that little sensitivity of the Holy Spirit? And all of a sudden, the sharpness of the pull and tug of the flow of life, the give and take, cause that humble heart to leave. 
And David said, create in me that clean heart. And also there was something else he said here. He said, I want my people to have the right approach. I want them to have the right attitude. Humble themselves, but then I want them to have the right approach. And here, as we look further in this verse, he says, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray. Notice with me how often in the Word of God, prayer is at the very top. It isn't the thing you finally like, take the the spare tire in your car, and because you have a flat, you pull out the spare to fix the car. Oftentimes, that's what happens in a fast-moving world like we live in today, that prayer becomes a last or latter resort rather than a first resort. And God here is saying, I want the right approach, and because of that, I am asking that my people not only humble themselves, but they pray. They're praying people. The church at Calvary Surprise will go forward as God's people are on their knees. It will not go forward with all the concepts or preaching or philosophies or ideas that people have, except there is prayer. Prayer leads the way. I see prayer like we have encountered tonight, tonight, the privilege, once again, just a few usually gather. You can be one of those people who, who come to pray. It's a real encounter. That we, we had a sister here a few months ago that her, her husband preached here, and the next day we were talking together, and I said, what was the highlight of your whole time? And surprise. And she said it was that time of encounter. Because she met the praying church. And God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and then pray. And here he says, this is where it's going to begin. In Matthew chapter 7, this is a real common phrase, but it's so easily forgotten because God has such a promise in 7 and 8. He says, ask and it will be given you. Notice how clear that is. You ask in faith, it's going to happen. That's what God says. Seek and you will find. God, you know what I take here sometimes? God says, ask the ridiculous. Cross the line of practicality and surrender your faith to me completely. And let me just simply open a door that you never, ever saw open before. And if you notice with me, as Jesus continues in this one verse, he says, for everyone who asks, receive. You might say, someone might say, well, I'm a young believer. I haven't been doing this very long. I've never really connected on that level. And notice how far-reaching Jesus' promise is. He says, if you just believe, you'll receive. He doesn't say if you have the right phraseology or if you get to encounter even tonight or if you have this special connection with God because of your devotions. He says when you ask, believing, you'll receive. God will bless in the most amazing ways. And Jesus is saying this, and he who seeks will find. And he says this is what happens. So prayer just keeps opening doors. He who seeks finds. The door opens. Wow, God, there you are. And to him it knocks, it will be opened. And God just says, I'll open the door. Just, I just ask you to knock. I've wondered at times, and maybe, maybe uh, I just wondered how many times uh, 
at the judgment seat of Christ, we stand before God and God just simply looks at us and said, you never asked. Or maybe God said, you did ask and I answered your prayer, but it came a different way and you never saw it. But, but God here giving Solomon the, the passion of his heart, uh, he is saying, Solomon, what I'm looking for is my people. And you see them, they're all around you. But I, I, I'm looking for my people. But I'm also looking for people that make the choice of the path of humility. It doesn't just happen. It's not a default that just happens. We don't just become humble people because we're new creatures in Christ. There's this flesh that wants to rise up every day. There's this inside of me that wants to throw that blow. I can plan my blow just like you. I can plan how I can swing it. I can plan how I could say it. I could plan how I could nail someone to the wall. But the word of God says, humble yourself and pray. And then he says something that is so important. He's just simply saying, but there's something else I want them to do. I want my people to do this, and that is to seek my face. I don't want you to seek the temple. It's not about the temple. What does that mean in our world today that is filled with idolatry every single place we turn? It's not just at one area. It is all of those things that rise up to rival the very magnificence of the Lord God from heaven. And they come in so many ways. And God is saying, seek me. You're my people, seek me. Go past, beyond, above, and seek my face. And you, say, you know, sometimes we can read that and we can think, what does that mean to seek the face of God? It almost sounds like it's uh, philosophical. Some, um, some conceptual term. But really, it's pretty simple. Jesus said it like this. We, we don't have it on the screen, but seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, all of these things will be added to you. But here's another verse. I love this verse in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 40 and 41. And here it is that Jesus just simply says, or, or, or Jeremiah is speaking this as he's lamenting the captivity of the nation of Israel who were, was going into captivity because they turned to an image rather than to the creator God. And here it is. He said, let us examine and probe our ways. When we speak of, thinking of seeking the face of God, look at self-examination first. God, who am I? How much do I need you? Probe our ways. Lord, uh, reveal in me that area that I need to hear, but I don't want to hear. And then he said this, let's examine and probe our ways, and I love this, let's, then let's turn to God. It's not like, let's get it all figured out and get ourselves perfect, and let's get all figured out, and then we'll go seek the face of God. He said, examine and prove your ways, and probably what he's saying is you're going to see as you examine and prove your ways, you're not able, you're not worthy. And then he says, then turn to God. If you turn, turn to God, as you notice, lamentations are saying, here, and then we return to the Lord and we lift up our heart and hands toward the God of heaven. And there you are, God, and you have the answers. And God is saying, I want my people to seek my face. You know, a couple nights ago, Deb and I was, had, had dinner together in this little place and we got done. And all of a sudden, just like this, I got hungry for yogurt. It was like 
Probably some of you get that. I just wanted some yogurt. And there was a place just like four building, buildings down that had yogurt. So guess where I went to get yogurt? I went where they served yogurt. I went to the place that I knew you could get yogurt. And it was good yogurt. And it was hot outside. So all that was great. But there is a truth here that when we go to the source, we will find him. And he'll be exactly where he says he is. But he asks us to seek his face. Sometimes we can seek, the, you know, when I was a younger guy, I would get into a straight as a young pastor and I'd grab the phone and I'd say, I'll call my best pastor friend and I will lament with him. And I'd say, hey, you've got to hear my problems. And I'd tell him my problems. He says, well, you're going to hear mine. I, he tells me his problems. Wow, you've got problems. What are we going to do? But guess what God was doing? He was going and saying, I want you to seek my face. I want you to come to me. This is what matters. And this is what God is saying. He says, oh, how I want these people to seek my face. And then he says, this, this is what's going to happen when they do. This is my promise. And it's, it's very simple, but it's amazingly not only profound, but comforting, and that which we can take home today. He says, when my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, one more thing here, you'll notice and turn from their wicked ways that they turn you know it's like when you're on the way to church we go up to 303 over here and there's one road to turn to get to the church called greenway and i've missed that turn probably like some of you have different times i was somewhere else in my mind when i got to the place of greenway road but there's only one way to get back to the church unless you want to take a big divertive way just turn around and go back get off at bell Hang a left, go back to Greenway, turn left, and it will get you here. When the Word of God speaks of turning from our wicked ways, it's speaking about making conscious choices to turn back to God. The Word of God is so beautiful this way because uh, God just loves to bless. And I, I think of this, uh, the Word of God, God says it like this in Isaiah 55 and 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord. And he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I want him to come back to me. And when you come back to, when I, when you come back to me, amazing things happen. And this is what God is saying here. But then we get to the promise that God has that we want us all to take from this. But from the promise, I want us to get one other lesson that could have been the heartbeat of God here as we're looking at this. He's saying, uh, what, will I, what will I do when this happens for my people? I will hear. Notice it, it sounds simple, but it is so vital to know God hears. To know he's there. He hears a groan of our heart. He hears the whisper of our heart. He hears that little utterance that we say, God, I can't tell anybody else but you. God hears. And I love that. Psalm 34 and 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. I just love to think of a God, a God who never sleeps, who never, who never closes his ears. He doesn't stop his ears. He's just waiting as we turn to him. He says, I will hear. 
the next thing he says here is, I will forgive. And that's one of the beauties even of Israel as God showed several times when they turned back that he would forgive them. He would pour out his love upon them even though they were not worthy of his love. And this is the amazing thing about the forgiveness of John, next, of God. Next week we'll be looking in John. And here in 1 John 1, 9 and 10, just one of those great verses, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And I love this one in Proverbs 28 and 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will have compassion. So God says, when you come as my people and you follow the path that I ask you to make, with your attitude and actions, there's something's going to happen. I'm going to hear. I'm going to forgive. And there's one more thing he says I'm going to do. I'm going to heal their land. And one of our, sister, our sisters, she's praying. I'm going to pop this thing up here and see if we can't slow it down a little bit. But, but as, as our sister was praying uh, this morning in worship, I heard that healing God of our land. And, and oftentimes we think, you know, America needs healing. There is no question. All you've got to do is uh, pick up the press and media at any level, and you recognize the tremendous healing that's needed in America Families need healing. Churches need healing. Homes need healing. Uh, relationships need healing. And this is who God is, is this great healer. But here, God just simply says, I will, hear their, I will heal their land. And there's a verse in Joel. It's a beautiful verse in chapter 2, verse 25. He says, then I will, he says, when you come to me, God was saying, and Joel was prophesying, then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the nine locust, my great army which I sent among you. And what he's saying is, I'm going to make up the difference. When you come to me and you give your life to me, I will take care of the voids that have been destroyed by the enemy. I will build the bridges. I will restore the fellowships. I will do the mighty things that you cannot do but I ask you to come and let me heal. And God says, I will do this in the most amazing way. But I want you to think of one more thing as we just look at this last verse here that goes right after this verse. Verse 15, he says, Now my eyes will be open, my ears attentive to the prayer offered before me. God, God's saying, I'm just waiting to bless. I don't think we have any idea, really, apart from the Spirit of God touching us, how deeply God desires even to bless this church. God just simply says, I'm just waiting to bless. I just want you to come to me, and I am waiting to bless. And then notice verse 16, for now I have chosen and consecrated this house. We say this house. But I want you to think of it a little deeper with me tonight, that today on this side of the cross on Calvary, that my name may be there forever. Remember how long God's house stood? 410 years, and it went down. Have you ever noticed how many institutions and 
churches and buildings and businesses stand for just a season and they go down. It's over. But what God is saying here is there's something I'm speaking about spiritually that's going to go beyond this. And he says, I want my name to be there forever. This house. What house is he talking about? I take you to a house more beautiful than the house you saw this morning. It is the temple of the living God in which he dwells within your heart. It is a house that lives for eternity. Is it a house that will never be, never fade away? It is a house that has all of the promises of life and godliness and eternal life forever. And God could be speaking of this house. Because later, as you go into the New Testament, you'll find this again and again and again. This house, my house, is your heart. My real home isn't that temple. God's real home was to be in the heart of the people whose hearts turn toward him. And when he does that, it becomes the most beautiful temple that isn't made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Here's a beautiful verse in 2 Corinthians 6 and 16. On this side of Calvary, we look back and hear God said this through the Apostle Paul. He says, I will dwell in them before he dwelled with them. He was for them, he was with them, but there's something so beautiful, this side of Calvary, and it is a teaching that Christ is in us. He will dwell, he will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they should be my people. And notice the depth and the length of the relationship. In verse 16, my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Christ in you is what Paul says in Colossians, which is the hope of glory. Jesus in you, doing something that is far more beautiful than any temple, more magnificent than all the gold that would have ever been invested in the temple of Israel. And you know what God really calls you, each of you, as his children? He calls you beautiful. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. You are his handiwork. You are his creation. You are his bride. He's coming back to marry you. He's engaged you, engaged with you. And this is the truth of the gospel through which, to me, this temple points to. That there's something so much greater and we're there today. And we have the privilege as his children to walk out these doors as temples of the living God and glow for Jesus with this very glory of God that came down upon that temple, but it goes out of us and through us to others in many, many ways. There may be someone here this morning who has never, ever thought about God dwelling within them. I don't know who you are. God does. But it is more than just a concept or philosophy. The Word of God speaks of it as a relationship that I want to dwell in you. And he doesn't ask us just to go through a big set of steps and get this right and get this. He's just simply saying, come to me and let me live in you. 
And I will change everything, one step at a time. I will change relationships. I will change difficult situations. But more than this, you will be the temple of the living God. And you will be the most beautiful, magnificent thing that I have ever created on the face of the earth. And this is what God calls his children. And you can be that today too. All he asks you to do is just to ask him to come in to your heart and cleanse you. And you become a new creature in Christ Jesus. And you have the privilege to come up. There will be one more song and we'll have a word of prayer. And you can come up. You can, there will be people to pray with you here. There will be pe there's people throughout this congregation that can pray with you. But if that is you today, don't let this opportunity leave. Because there is nothing greater than saying, God, we have something in the temple of the living God that exceeds everything else that the world has to offer, including that great temple. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your promises. Thank you, God, that you are this amazing God that keeps hearing and forgiving and healing and cleansing and calling us to yourself, but then also, Lord, that you are the living God who indwells us as your child. You call us a new creature in Christ Jesus. You tell us old things are passed away and everything has become new. You tell us that we're an heir and a joint heir of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you can have your way among us. Speak to us, Lord, as you want us to hear and help us to hear what you're saying. And then, Lord, I just pray that you can give each of us, if you have brought any step of conviction on any heart here this morning, as you have, as you have, Lord, that you will give us the grace to take the step of faith, to follow you, and let you come in and change us from the inside out and to dwell within us, that we become the temple of the living God, not made with hands, but made with, with God himself and Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. In Christ's name we pray, amen.